Thank you for listening to the Calvary Monterey podcast. Please visit calvary.com to learn more about our church. And visit nateholdridge.com for additional Bible teaching from our lead pastor, Nate Holdridge. Teaching today is our assistant pastor, Matt Kaler. All right, well, good morning. Welcome to Calvary. It's great to see everyone here. My name's Matt. I'm one of the pastors. And uh, if you're new to our church, uh, our lead pastor, Pastor Nate, he'll be back next week in the pulpit. Um, They're having a great time on their kind of summer vacation, but we'll look forward to having him back. I get to uh, teach out of Psalm 14 today. So if you have a Bible, go ahead and turn or open your app to Psalm chapter 14. And what I'd love to do is uh, I'd love to read this whole chapter at seven verses and then pray and then jump in and see what the Lord has to say for us today. All right, the title for this psalm is to the choir master of David. The fool has said in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt. They do abominable deeds. There is none who does good. The Lord looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there are any who understand, who seek after God. They've all turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. There is none who does good, not even one. Have they no knowledge? All the evildoers who eat up my people as they eat bread and do not call upon the Lord. There they are in great terror, for God is with the generation of the righteous. You would shame the plans of the poor, but the Lord is his refuge. Oh, that salvation for Israel would come out of Zion. When the Lord restores the fortunes of his people, let Jacob rejoice, let Israel be glad. Let's pray. So Lord, thank you for this chapter that we get to look at this morning. Lord, would you use your word to open our eyes to the things that we need to see, that we need to be reminded of, that we need to be encouraged by. Thank you, Lord, that your word is alive, it's living, and it's active, and it's going to accomplish the work, Lord, that you have set forth for it to accomplish. So let our hearts be open, pliable, ready to receive your good word today. We thank you, Lord. Bless our time. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, author and pastor Craig Groeschel in his book, The Christian Atheist, describes a type of Christian that believes in God but lives as if he doesn't actually exist. It's this person that may know God, may believe in God, may trust him for salvation, but when it comes to kind of the everyday stuff of life, the decisions they make, the places they go, the people they interact with, the words they say, They ignore God and his presence and live as though he doesn't exist. Now, our psalm opens up describing this type of person. You see, in verse 1, it says, The fool has said in his heart, there is no God. The psalmist declares this type of person to be a fool. That is not someone lacking intelligence. It's more of a moral fool, someone who chooses in how they live to ignore God and his place in their life. This isn't speaking about a classical atheist who would say God doesn't exist. This is the person that is more like I would call a practical atheist. They may believe in God, but maybe they just view God as being indifferent. God is distant. God isn't involved in their everyday experience. This verse is more literally translated, the fool says in his heart, no God, no God, 
just kind of walking through life nonchalantly, just kind of not giving acknowledgement to the person in the place of God. A practical atheist is someone who believes in God but lives as though he doesn't exist. And it's at the point that we need to ask ourselves the question, are there periods of time in our lives, whether days or moments of the day, weeks, months, maybe years that we have lived like a practical atheist, where we have belief in God, we acknowledge his existence, we, we acknowledge salvation, that, that we are saved through faith in Jesus, but we live as though we are on our own. We live as though he doesn't exist. In our lives, we become more dependent on our own wisdom to navigate the challenges of life, and we trust in our own ability to fix the stressful situations that are before us. Do we find ourselves getting through the end of the day, putting our head on the pillow, and then have the thought, oh Lord, I haven't even acknowledged you today. Now, it never happens to me, but I know there's a lot of you here that struggle with that, and so I'm really going to try to relate to you, but here's the thing. All of us, to some degree, struggle with this, where we go through the day, and we're, we're busy. Our minds are focused on the things. We're committed to whether our work or our job or a career, whatever it may be, and and we fail to acknowledge the presence and the nearness of our God. It's so easy to do, especially in our highly distracted world. In his book, Respectable Sins, author Jerry Bridges uses another term to describe kind of the temptation to live without an awareness of God. He uses the term ungodliness. Now that, that sounds kind of heavy, but don't think unrighteousness or don't think wickedness. It, it's just kind of this life as he defines living one's everyday life with little or no thought of God. In fact, Bridges makes the argument that the sin of ungodliness is the root cause of most other sins. Our departure away from an awareness of God's presence and purpose in our life to where we live independently or we do things outside of his good intended will for us. So what can we do about it? Well, in this psalm, we're going to see David contrast the marks of the foolish person, remember the person that lives with little or no thought with God or of God, with the righteous person, this person that lives with a growing awareness and deep knowledge of his goodness in their lives. So as we look at this psalm, I want to look at really four things that mark the life that has this type of growing awareness of God's presence and nearness. Another way to say this is four ways not to live like a practical atheist. So we're going to dive in. Let's look at verse 1 together again. The fool has said in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt. They do abominable deeds. There is none who does good. You know, it's been said the two absolute truths in this world are there is a God and you are not him. Heard that before? I think we could add a third and that's in and out have the best hamburgers, but that's, you know, something separate. Second Opinions, chapter 3, I think, is where we find that one. So, <laughs> Hebrews 4.13, the writer says, Nothing in all of creation is hidden from God. Everything is naked and exposed before his eyes. And he is the one to whom we are accountable. You see, the first way that we can not be a practical atheist is remember that we are accountable to God. We are accountable to God. Now, this may seem so basic because we understand as God being our creator, he's made us, he's fashioned us, 
He sees everything, but as basic as a truth like we are accountable to God is, there's a segment of our culture that would say maybe yes to belief in God, but would stop short of saying that God is going to hold them accountable for how they live. They almost have an idea of God being this more distant figure that just kind of set the world up and now just kind of lets us do our thing, is more indifferent to us. In fact, in the 2005 book, Soul Searching, The Religious and Spiritual Lives of American Teenagers, sociologists Christian Smith and Melinda Lundquist-Denton developed a term to describe what they consider to be the common belief among U.S. youths. This idea, kind of the the main um, understanding of God for young people, they say, here, here is what marks it. It's called moralistic therapeutic deism, which is a mouthful, but here are the tenets of this belief system. There is a belief in a God, but he remains distant from people's lives. People are supposed to be good to each other, be moral. Third, the universal purpose of life is being happy and feeling good about oneself. Fourth, there are no absolute moral truths. And fifth, God allows good people into heaven. Now, after researching and after taking surveys, this is what they came up with to to describe the kind of belief that many people, I would say not just young people, but many people today in our culture would believe about God. God's more like a, a cheerleader on the sidelines. You know, when things are going good in our life, God's like, yeah, that's my boy. <laughs> good job. When things aren't going well and we're sad, God's like, I'm sad too. So through the ups and downs of life, God's there, he's distant, he's watching, but, but no matter what he does, it doesn't really have an impact on the outcome of the game. He's just kind of there. And I'm left to kind of construct my own meaning and purpose and identity. But friends, is this what we find in the scriptures? (laughs) Again, what does the Bible say about God? And this is why it's so important that we read our Bibles and we look to understand who God is in the scripture, because we will come up with our own idea. We'll construct through culture, through other means, our, our view of God that is inaccurate. And man, all of our issues stem from an inaccurate view of who God is. And this is what happens for the foolish person. How does their life play out? Well, look again in verse one. It says, they are corrupt. They do abominable deeds. There is none who does good. This is how the foolish person's life plays out when they ignore God and his place in their life. This is not saying that every person that denies God lives a terrible and moral life and every believer lives a good life. That's not what David is saying. David's making the point that there's a marked difference in the life of the person that lives with a growing awareness of God in their life. The person that doesn't live that way, even the good that they do can be tinged with selfish motives. This verse also carries the notion that the person that lives without an awareness of God has no regard for how their actions may impact their relationship with God. They do what they do without thought of, man, is this actually impacting my relationship with God? But the Bible describes God being personal, a God who all throughout scriptures is pursuing his people who is making covenant, who is committing to his people over and over again to the point where God came down to our earth, put on human flesh, truly showed us what he was like and gave his life for us so that we could be saved, so that we could be rescued from ourselves. John three seventeen, 
It's after the most famous verse in the Bible, John 3, 16, and it's a good one. It says, for God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. You see, that's what God's trying to do. That's what God's desiring to do. He's not looking, going, man, when, when are you guys going to screw up so I can just, you know, lightning bolt, boom, right there. That's not what this means to be accountable to God. One of the ways that, that we are accountable to God is just operating and living in the system that he has set up. This one of consequences and actions, cause and effect. Galatians 6, 7 talks about it. Do not be deceived. God cannot be mocked. A man reaps what he sows. You know, this is kind of a universal truth that God has placed in our world. It's like the old saying, if you plant corn, you're going to get corn every time. You're never going to plant corn and then come out and be like, hey, strawberries, <laughs> right on. That's just not the way it works. I think an understanding of the reaping and sowing dynamic of our lives is a, is a principle that seems to fade more and more with our culture. I think it's one of the major deceptions that the enemy has foisted on our world. This idea that sin can be done in a vacuum, that your sin can be private, that you can sin in secret and not have it affect your life in other ways. You know, one of the things we grew up hearing, and I'm sure you grew up hearing, and now maybe you're even saying it to your kids. Remember this thing, garbage in, garbage out. That's right. Maybe a question we're left with is asking ourselves, have we left God out of the things that we're allowing in our lives? Have we bought into this thought that, well, what I'm doing in secret isn't as big a deal? Have we left God out of our entertainment choices, what we're allowing through our eyes and our ears? Have we left God out of our digital conversations and interactions? Have we left God out of our dating relationships? See, the foolish person is living without an awareness of God's involvement in their everyday life. And I think, friends, too, with the proliferation of the internet and sin becoming more readily available than it's ever been, often we forget that what's done in secret is seen by God. And we can't expect to sin in the dark and not have it wreak havoc on our spiritual lives. Remember that old kid's poem, which I remember hearing as a kid and being, you know, low-key creeped out with the idea of, uh, oh, be careful, little eyes, what you see. Be careful, little eyes, what you see. For the Father up above is looking down in love. Oh, be careful, little eyes, what you see. Then it goes on. Be careful, little ears, what you hear. Be careful, little tongue, what you say. Be careful, little hands, what you do. Be careful, little feet, what you, where you go. And I just remember thinking like, man, everything. I'm just kind of like, all right, Lord, are you just waiting for me to mess up, right? But that's not what we see in the God of the Bible. We see the God of the Bible invites us into relationship, to know him to know his way, to know his will on how we are to live. In fact, a deeper awareness and understanding and knowledge of God, I believe, produces more of a desire to walk in a way that would glorify him. Paul says it in this way in his prayer to the Colossian church, Colossians 1, 9 through 10. And so from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you. How did he pray? I think Paul's prayers are a good template for us and how we should pray asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. See, what Paul was praying is, Lord, help them know you more. Help them grow in an awareness and a knowledge of you because when they do that, what will follow is a life of obedience to your commands. 
To know him is to love him. To love him is to follow him. And I think developing a greater awareness of God as our creator through his word and a growing understanding that we are his creation in submission to him, I believe the more that truth settles in our hearts, the more it will lead to a greater desire to walk in a manner worthy of him. Okay, so the first way not to live as a practical atheist is to remember we are accountable to God. Number two, you are dependent upon him. We are dependent upon God. Look at verse two through four. The Lord looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there are any who understand, who seek after him. They've all turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. There is none who does good, not even one. Have they no knowledge, all the evildoers who eat up my people as they eat bread and do not call upon the Lord? Now notice in these verses, we're no longer hearing from the foolish person who says in his heart, there is no God. We're hearing about God's assessment as he looks down on his people, as he looks down on the person that is pursuing his own way. Later, Paul, the apostle, would quote this exact passage in Romans chapter 3 and apply it to all of humanity. But in our passage here, David is really specifically applying these traits to the person that lives without a knowledge of God in their everyday life. What does that person's life look like? Well, notice it says they've turned aside from God. They don't seek after him. They don't do good, and they don't call upon him. Really what David is describing and expressing is the person that lives independent from God. They live disconnected from him. And this independence can be traced all the way back to the garden where Satan tempted Adam and Eve to eat the fruit so that what? They could be like God and their eyes would be open. It was the offer of you being your own master, you being your own captain, you being your own savior. And that lie was packaged in a way that they took and ate of that fruit. And now we have all suffered as a result. One person in history that sought to live kind of a life apart from God is C.S. Lewis. And many of you know about C.S. Lewis, one of my favorite authors, brilliant intellectual, British. Those often go together. So I didn't even need to say that probably, but in the first half of the 20th century. Just notice like in movies, whenever there's like a smart person in a movie, they always have a British accent, right? I don't know. I want to see like the brilliant philosopher, professor with like a serious Southern drawl. I want to see that in a movie, but I mean, okay, where, where was I? Anyway, in his book, Mere Christianity, C.S. Lewis describes what led him eventually to embrace God and stop living um, an atheistic life and independently from God. He says this, my argument against God was that the universe seems so cruel and unjust, but just how had I got this idea of just and unjust? A man does not call a line crooked unless he has some idea of a straight line. What was I comparing this universe with when I called it unjust? Thus, in the very act of trying to prove that God did not exist, in other words, that the whole of reality was senseless, I found I was forced to assume that one part of reality, namely my idea of justice, was full of sense. Consequently, atheism turns out to be too simple. If the whole universe has no meaning, we should never have found out that it has no meaning. You see, Lewis began, began to recognize that even suffering and pain are not without purpose, but they can be used as ways to, to have God get our attention and draw us closer to himself. Of course, you know, Lewis went on to become a great 
believer and Christian, um, you know, most notably known for the Chronicles of Narnia series, which is a largely an allegory of the Christian experience. But he became a staunch defender of the faith. And so I encourage you, any of you that struggle with these things, I, I encourage you to look at Lewis's writings. But it's one thing to depend upon the Lord when things are falling apart. It's another thing to depend upon the Lord and have this growing awareness of his presence and nearness when things seemingly are running smooth. And I think that's probably more of our struggle. Maybe uh, we can uh, live like practical atheists when, when life is just going okay. And we're dialed in. We've got our schedules going. We've got the kids, you know, in, uh, in the sports and the clubs that they need to be in. We've got retirement. You know, it's like we're getting, things, we're getting things dialed. And oftentimes it's in those spaces that we can go through life and live like practical atheists. So what's the challenge for us today? I know the Lord is there when I need him. But what about when I don't need him? I think James has a good word for us. James 4, 13 through 15 says, Now listen, you who say, Today or tomorrow we will go to this or that city, spend a year there, carry on business, and make money. Why? You do not even know what will happen tomorrow. What is your life? You are a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, If it is the Lord's will, we will live and do this or that. You see, James is not condemning planning. For you, kind of fly by the seat of your pants, people. This is not your proof text. Like, we just need to trust the Lord. If he wills, it will all work out. There'll be a hotel bed for us somewhere. You know, it's not that kind of a thing. What he speaks against is a type of planning that does not acknowledge our dependence upon God to carry out our plans. It's almost like we make plans and then we know, well, if anything goes wrong, we'll trust God. It's like God's kind of, you know, uh, on retainer. If we need him, he's there, faithful, But man, I'm glad I got this. Remember, God is looking for those that have an understanding of who he is, for those that seek after him and call upon him. How can we grow in expressing our dependence upon God? Well, if only there was a tool that God gave us to express our dependence upon him, prayer. (laughs) Prayer is that tool. Man, what a great way to express our dependence upon God, to cry out to him, to do what the, the practical atheist fails to do. We seek after him. We call upon the name of the Lord. We acknowledge his sovereignty and his control over every aspect of life. While at the same time acknowledging that he's given us free will to choose, to make decisions, but not divorced from his good plan. Matthew 6, Jesus spoke to his disciples and they asked the question, Jesus teaches how do we pray? And Jesus said, well, pray like this. And he gave a model prayer, which is a beautiful pray, prayer to pray word for word, but also gives us even more than that, just a, a great understanding of how we are to approach God in prayer. It says, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our debts as we also forgive those who are indebted to us and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. You see how God dependent that prayer is? You see how God centered that prayer is? And I think the problem maybe for some of us isn't so much that we aren't praying, it's that our prayers aren't reflecting our need and dependence upon him for everything. We think that the way that our kids are gonna grow up is solely dependent on our ability to parent them well. 
And man, I don't know about you, but when I get in that zone, <laughs> parenting can be a very discouraging endeavor. Because if it all depends upon me, if it all depends on my ability to do everything and, and perfectly represent the heart of the Father, then man, I am going to be living in fear and dread of their future. But if I can trust that, God, actually, you love them more than I do, you care for them, you're going to pursue them. I love the prayer that, that Riley led us through even during worship and praying for our families. And we've got two boys. And so, man, I have such a heart for them. And I just want to see them just be enraptured by God's love. But I just, I have to know, like, the, the percentage that I have that wants to see them just be swept up in his goodness and his grace, how much more does God want for them to experience that? And this isn't all on me. It's not all on my wife. It's not all on you. Trust the Lord. Realize that your, your very being, your dependence needs to be upon him. I'm going to give you a little bit of Lewis today too. So just throughout, you just got to be prepared for that. But I like this quote from Lewis. He says, I pray because I can't help myself. I pray because I'm helpless. I pray because the need flows out of me all the time, waking and sleeping. It doesn't change God. It changes me. This is what prayer does. It reorients our mind away from thinking that we have to have control. And it gives control back to the Lord. So he can bless the work of our hands and he can receive the glory for the things that we do. In fact, Paul encouraged the Corinthian church with this beautiful truth in 1 Corinthians 10, 31. He says, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Talk about an awareness for God. Talk about a dependence upon the Lord. This is what it looks like to be God-dependent, not independent. You recognize every moment of every day is an opportunity to glorify God. What does that look like? How do we do this? Well, I think Jerry Bridges is helpful in this regard. So whether we're driving or shopping or engaging in our social relationships, he says there's a twofold goal. First, I desire that all I do be pleasing to God. I want God to be pleased with the way I go about the ordinary activities of my day. So I pray prospectively over the day before me, asking the Holy Spirit to direct my thoughts, words, and actions so that they will be pleasing to God. Setting the day, the course, and say, Lord, there's a lot that's going to happen today, so would you guide and direct? Would you be glorified in my words, in my thoughts, in my actions? Secondly, to do all to the glory of God means that I desire that all my activities of an ordinary day will honor God before other people. Jesus said, in the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Isn't that great? To actually not just be thinking of how are my actions impacting my relationship with God, but how are my actions impacting those that haven't yet met Jesus or those that do know the Lord but need encouragement. To honor and glorify God with all that we do and everyone I come into contact with, from the Starbucks barista to the to the person who's cutting my hair, to the person who's working on my car, to my kid's teacher, to the receptionist in the doctor's office, that all of those interactions I'd be able to look at as opportunities to bring God glory. Now, if at this point you're feeling overwhelmed or discouraged because you're like, wow, this is the kind of awareness that I need to have in my life of the Lord. Listen, there was only one truly, completely godly person in all of life, and that was Jesus. At every time, he was doing what was pleasing to the Father and glorifying to the Lord. You are not Jesus, right? Remember the two universal truths that there is a God, you are not him? Be encouraged. Guys, we're, we're often on kind of a spectrum. 
And we, we often just need to be reminded, and that's why having God's word be a part of our daily lives is such an encouraging reminder to, to, to bring that awareness to the forefront once again. Speaking of that, one of the best ways to grow in our awareness is to intentionally spend time with Jesus every day. Many Christians have chosen to do this in the morning to cast a vision for their day that goes beyond what is, what is the day going to hold and all the to-dos, but Lord, would you guide what I'm doing? Would you over and, 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 um, oversee my lists and my to-dos? Paul's encouragement to young Timothy with this regard was train yourself for godliness. I think a lot of us go wrong when we just say, okay, I need to read my Bible, I need to pray, and so I'm just going to muster up the willpower and I'm going to do it. You know, willpower will only get you so far. But man, I love this word train because what it has is this idea that uh, it's actually a word that was used for, for athletics in Paul's day and the athletic culture that would practice and be prepared for when the competition came. It, it implies consistency, commitment, and discipline. And some of us, we need to think less of willpower and more of like training, like actually putting things in our lives, rhythms and schedules and things that would make it to where we grow in our awareness of God. Ancient Christians and Christians in the last couple of thousand years, one of the things that they would employ is something called the daily office. Daily office basically refers to daily duty. It's kind of the sanctification of our time before the Lord. And what it speaks of is um, basically taking three parts of your day, morning, noon, and night, and having touch points that you just organize your day, whatever you're doing, work, school, parenting, whatever it may be. And you just say in the morning, I'm going to have a touch point with the Lord where there's scripture and prayer. At noon, I'm going to have a touch point with the Lord where there's scripture and prayer. And then in the evening, I'm going to have a touch point. You know, some of us, maybe we need to incorporate a daily office in a time where we kind of reorient back to greater awareness of the Lord. That's something that we can look at, possibly a tool, but, but this isn't to be robotic. This isn't to be just like, I got to go through these emotions. But sometimes I, I do think that at risk of being legalistic, we just try to have this organic thing. <laughs> and then, you know what? Organic is great, you know, when you're eating good fruit. But, but when it comes to your Christian life, organic can just kind of be an excuse for like laziness, right? <laughs> I'm just going to let it flow. Like my relationship with God is just, it's always happening. Really? Okay. Let me ask him about that. No, I'm just kidding. But. So the idea is sometimes we need to put things in practice that are going to orient our hearts around the one whom we want to grow in greater awareness. C.S. Lewis, he says, he has infinite attention to spare for each one of us. He does not have to deal with us in the mass. You are as much alone with him as if you were the only being he had ever created. And I think that helps to understand what he's inviting us into, this kind of intimacy. Okay, number three. In these ways to not live as a practical atheist, we're accountable to God, we're dependent upon God. Number three, we are protected by God. Look at verse five and six. There they are in great terror, for God is with the generation of the righteous, and you would shame the plans of the poor, but the Lord is his refuge. These verses would indicate that the foolish person, the person that lives as if God doesn't exist, is being gripped by fear. As they live apart from God, they live in great terror. Not only that, but they shame the plans of the poor. They, in their doing, they're working against the poor, the very people that God has provided a refuge for. So in this sense, they are fighting against God. 
remember hearing a story about a young boy who was playing with a football in his backyard, and he was kicking it up, and he ended up doing a pretty good kick, and, and it, he sent it over into the, the neighbor's yard over the fence. And over in the neighbor's yard, there was, you know, some chickens and a rooster. And so the rooster kind of comes over to the ball and kind of pushes it over to the hens and, you know, kind of just goes up to them and says, hey, I'm not trying to complain, but I just want you guys to see what they're producing over there. <laughs> and, you know, sometimes we can, we can think like, you know, if the fence is belief and on the other side of the fence is like, you know, disbelief or or whatever it may be, we could just be thinking like, man, is there something over there? If I were to go over there, am I going to like figure out that, that what I'm believing is, is a lie, is made up? You know, I remember some 20 years ago in college, it was right around the new atheist movement that was emerging. Men like Richard Dawkins, Christopher Hitchens, Sam Harris, these intellectuals who had a form of atheism that was classic in it in its denial of God's existence, but, but had an edge that um, basically had a hostility towards religion and religious belief. They weren't indifferent, but they were, they were outright hostile towards people believing in God, thinking that religion was the problem in the world. I think Richard Dawkins maybe was one of the more prominent and outspoken critics of new atheism. And I remember feeling a sense of concern with new atheism while I was wrestling with aspects of my faith in my early 20s going to college. There's a, there's a force and a passion, these brilliant, intellectual, articulate men speaking against the belief that I grew up with. It was unsettling. I remember one day grabbing coffee with our church's college, college ministry leader at the time, and I showed up to this coffee shop, and he was reading The God Delusion by Richard Dawkins. And I just remember my heart sank. I'm like, oh, no. Here it is. This is it. <laughs> I'm going, I'm meeting this guy. I'm, I'm wanting to be encouraged. And now, now he's, he's basically going to try to convert me to atheism. And I showed up and I'm just like, hey, how's it going? And he's like, good. I'm just kind of checking this book out. You know, I've heard a lot about it. I just kind of wanted to see what it had to offer. I was like, well, what does it have to offer? <laughs> Nervous. He's like, you know what? He's a brilliant writer. He's obviously smart. Um, he, he's kind of, you know, um, really quirky with, with how he communicates. He says, but, you know, I'm looking at his arguments, and his, his arguments really are weak and unconvincing. And he said, I read this kind of stuff because I want to be able to share with people that are struggling with these ideas. And he says, you know what this does is it really bolsters my faith in Christ and belief in God. And I was just like, oh, good. <laughs> can I order a coffee? You know, and I just, it was as if someone was just putting another brick in the layer of my foundation. What I thought, what I was concerned, oh no, if I, if I, if I hear a little bit more, if I listen to this, if I, am I going to be drawn over? And I, and I just realized, you know, guys, we're going to face opposition. We're going to see that, that there's going to be those that try to shame the poor, so to speak. And yet, just as David declares, God is our refuge. God is our protector. You know, for those of us that feel intellectually that we are being challenged or we are being attacked, or, or maybe you're just in a season like I went through, that I just felt like 
it just kind of felt like in a storm. I couldn't really make sense of where, you know, what do I believe? Who is Jesus? Like, who, all of this. My encouragement to you is the same encouragement that somebody gave to me as I was going through that. Don't stop seeking the Lord. Continue to hide out in him. He is the refuge. This isn't a time to pull back. This isn't a time to remove yourself from community. It's a time to look and to see, yeah, you know what? What's on the other side? Well, notice what the scripture says in verse five, that they are in great terror for God is with the generation of the righteous. Like in the end, God wins. If we believe the book, if we actually believe and trust in what God says, we know that, that the, the end of the story is new heavens, new earth, God righting every wrong, God making all things new, establishing his kingdom on earth where there's no more t- tears, there's no more suffering, there's no more pain. Like that's the vision of the future that we have. And we have this refuge in the Lord today. I remember hearing... Later, too, as I had reestablished my commitment to Christ and my faith, and, and, and three things, really, that, that I, I continued to go back to, and Romans 1 touches on two of these. Um, when Romans 1, Paul says, you know, God's invig- invisible attributes are clearly seen, leaving men without excuse. The three C's that I saw for God's existence, one is creation, you know, design speaks to a designer. Number two was conscience, this idea that, I mean, God's written his moral law on our hearts. As much as we try to deny it, we know that moral law speaks to a moral lawgiver. How do we have that in a purely humanistic worldview? But number three, most convincing, the third C was Christ, the person of Jesus, revelation, Emmanuel, God with us. I couldn't deny the prophecies about Jesus from the Old Testament that came true. What are the chances? I mean, it's just incalculable. But not only that, but the death and the resurrection of Jesus, the the resurrection being the most fantastic fact in history that I couldn't answer away, I couldn't ignore. If I was to walk away from my faith, I'd have to look at the evidence for the resurrection and just be like, I'm gonna have to be dishonest. I don't know, because there's too too much evidence there. And it was these things that bolstered my faith. And, and allowed me to continue moving forward in, in a deeper awareness of the Lord. Remember Stephen Hawking, noted atheist, was asked from a British newspaper what his thoughts were on religion. He says, religion is a fairy story for people who are afraid of the dark. John Lennox, Christian philosopher, mathematician, brilliant man, also British, um, <laughs> says, atheism is a fairy story for people who are afraid of the light. And I think we forget this sometimes. You know, with the Lord, yeah, we may feel as though we're being shamed, the plans of the poor, you know, but we can't forget that what God provides for us is a refuge that Jesus promised in John 16, that in me you may have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. In me, you have peace. So friends, how do we not live like a practical atheist? We gotta remember we're accountable to God, we're dependent on God, and we're protected by God. And lastly, you're united with God. Look at verse seven as we close. Oh, that salvation for Israel would come out of Zion. Zion is another word for Jerusalem. When the Lord restores the fortunes of his people, let Jacob rejoice and let Israel be glad. 
You see, even though David knew that the Lord was his refuge and that the foolish person would never win, it was probably hard for him to see that at the present time. So he expressed his heart and longing to see God bring the victory and deliverance that he promised. And I believe our world is desperately searching for meaning and purpose because we live in a world that offers so much but fails to deliver anything of lasting meaning and value and purpose. You remove God from the equation, you're left attempting to build an identity on your own. But the scripture says that even though we've all sinned and fallen short and are unable to save ourselves, Christ came and gave his life for us, rose again so that we could be united with him to a new life. And when we put our trust in him, we're given a new identity. This new identity is not based on kind of our curated sense of meaning and purpose, but on the purpose our creator designed us to live in. Paul gets at this in Romans 6 when he says, or have you forgotten that when we were joined with Christ in baptism, we joined him in his death? For we died and were buried with Christ by baptism. And just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glorious power of the Father, now we may also live new lives. We're going to baptize some people immediately after the service. And this is the beautiful description of the symbolism of baptism, that it's identifying with Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. As we go down into the water, it's our old life that's being buried. And then as we come out of the water, it's our new life and our new identity that we are able to live with because we've been united with him. And then what's the application of this new identity? He goes on in verses 12 and 13 in the same chapter and says, do not let sin control the way you live. Do not give in to sinful desires. Do not let any part of your body become an instrument of evil to serve sin. Instead, and here we go, here's the purpose. Give yourselves completely to God. For you were dead, but now you have new life. So use your whole body as an instrument to do what is right for the glory of God. You see, this is a life that isn't lived for self, but it's a life lived in submission and surrender to God and his design for each one of us. It's a life that has meaning outside of the here and now because our hope is not on this temporal world. Our hope is in heaven. Our hope is in the new heavens and the new earth that's coming one day that's going to right every wrong. Last summer, I read a book called The Meaning of Life by a man named Viktor Frankl. Viktor Frankl uh, was an Austrian physicist, or excuse me, psychiatrist that lived through the Holocaust and later developed a field of psychology known as logotherapy. And it was his own kind of um, brand of psychology, logo meaning meaning. So meaning therapy. During his time at Auschwitz, Frankl observed the brutality and evil around him, even losing his mother and wife during this time. However, he made a poignant observation during his time in the Nazi concentration camp, which later led him to develop this field of study and write books. He noted that people in the death camps usually responded to trauma in one of three ways, as they, A, lost all principles and betrayed those closest to them, B, gave up and withered, or C, became quietly heroic, manifesting courage, and making sacrifices. And what he said distinguished these groups from one another was their source of hope. If they had temporal hope in things of this earthly life, like wealth, family, or career, there was nothing to lean on when those things were taken away. Those that had that temporal hope would eventually wither and die. But if they had a hope that extended beyond this life, they had something to live for and could envision an end to their sufferings. He speaks of one man 
who he spoke with, who had a tenacity in the face of brutality and evil and beatings. This man continued to persevere. So Frankel asked him, what, what was his source of hope? And he said, well, I believe that my wife, who also died in a concentration camp, is up in heaven watching me. And I believe that she's seen what I'm gonna do and how I carry the weight of what is placed before me. And he said, so I wanna live each day in a way that would make her proud. You see, that's a hope that, whether we would agree theologically, it's a hope that was placed on something outside of the temporal world. No one could take that hope from him, and so it became a motivation. These four things that we've shared with you this morning, this idea that you are accountable to God, this idea that you're dependent upon God, that you're protected, that you are united with God. This is all describing your new identity. You see, a greater awareness and nearness of God means going deeper and deeper in an awareness of your identity as a child of God. That's it. When we talk to our boys and our boys get, you know, I told you five and 10, or maybe I didn't tell you that, but they are five and 10. And um, they get opportunities to go to friends' houses or, you know, do these things. And, you know, we have the talk with them. All right, here's what we can do in our house. Here's what you can't do in anybody else's house. You know, it's all those kinds of things. But one of the things we say is, uh, I say to them, as I say, hey, you're Kaler boys. Kaler boys do this, whatever it may be, however we're applying it. This is what Kaler boys do. <laughs> because what I'm telling them basically is when we're not around, this is who you still are, right? And I'm speaking to, to that identity piece in them. And you see, when, when we live and, and we don't have this sense that God is there, that God is near, that, that we're dependent upon them, Guys, we're still his child. We need to recognize this is who we are. Not just who we are, but whose we are. We belong to him. He's bought us with a price. And now he invites us to live a life that brings glory to him. And it's really inviting him and just saying, Lord, every part of me, I'm yours. So lead and guide and follow me as I go through life. Remember who you are. Remember whose you are. And remember in all that you do to bring glory to the Lord. And man, it's an adventure. So let me pray for us as we close. Lord, thank you, God, that you have given us a vision that goes beyond just a temporal world and life and, and trying to construct an identity for ourselves. But Lord, thank you that you've invited us, you've united us to yourself to Lord, join with you in this new life that you have for us. So Lord, I pray that we would walk in that. Lord, that when we are going through life, that we would remember, Lord, who we are. We're your, we're your children, God, that you would be on the forefront. So Lord, center our lives around you more and more today. Wherever that may be, Spirit, have, have a work, convict our hearts, draw us to you. Lord, I pray that that we would not live as practical atheists, Lord, but that we would grow in a deeper awareness, dependence of your nearness. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. 
Thank you for listening. If you would like more teachings and information about Calvary Monterey, please visit calvary.com. You can also find books, teachings through the Bible, and articles from our lead pastor at nateholdridge.com. Thanks again for tuning in. See you next week.